uh, stand for one minute and pray before we uh, open up God's Word. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to come here as men and women uh, to enjoy one another, uh, to be community together, but to also recognize that we're your children, we're your followers, uh, for those of us who know you, and that we want to be more like you, yes. we want to learn about you. And uh, I pray that this would be a time that our hearts and minds would be enlightened and instructed, and that we would find ourselves trusting you more and following in your ways in a more deep and profound way. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So as you heard, this is our uh, last Sunday in a more cramped quarters. It kind of worked out because we had all these people going down to Oregon. So if there was ever a Sunday that we needed to be, uh, we could manage a smaller space, it turned out to be this, we can last. And so we will be next door, um, back to our normal place next week. So we have been going through for the past number of weeks uh, a series called The Story of God. And what we wanted to do is take you kind of at a uh, 30,000 foot level, kind of a big picture story of, uh, of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And to say that the best way to read the Bible is to see, I get to see you so much more closely. I really like this. Sorry, I just got distracted. I could think, oh, you're always way in the back. Like, Anyways, uh, we got, what we want to be able to do is say, look, the best way to read the Bible is not to see it as a bunch of um, proverbs and sayings and stories, but actually they all fit together to tell one big story, the story of God. And so uh, we started in Genesis, we looked at Abraham, we looked at their time uh, leaving Egypt, going into the promised land. Last week you looked at this uh, period of Israel's history called the monarchy, and this week we're going to be looking at the exile. Now before we jump into that, can we just click a button, and I want to recap the story that the people of God have gone through. Why is there a wine down there? It's supposed to be up there. Um, so we saw that they were in, uh, in slavery in Egypt. Then they went through the Passover where they sacrificed a lamb, put some blood on the doorposts. They were saved from the angel of death. Then they went through the Red Sea. Then they spent 40 years in the desert. We're in a period of war, a unique time in Israel's history, in order to experience going into the promised land, which is what we were calling shalom, a place of relational peace, harmony with God and with one another. That was the big goal. So they were there for a little while, and we'll see that it, it didn't last very long. But we can tell, it's, it's just helpful to know that this mimics our journey. Uh, we were in slavery through salvation in Jesus, baptism, learning through trials and tribulations how to be faithful in our love toward God and experience his love toward us. We go into mission with the hope of bringing his kingdom to earth. So there's a parallel between the story of God in the Old Testament and what we experience here as Christians today. So God's plan was to reconcile the world through a family, and that family now focuses on the royal line uh, particularly focusing on kings. Now, as we, uh, you began to see last week, looking at the life of David and so on, uh, some kings were good, most were not. 
it just, uh, it, it was not great. And so after David and then his son Solomon, then the kingdom divided, all the uh, 11 tribes became the uh, uh, Israel, and then Judah was the one tribe that was on its own. So they were split, and then is a story of king after king, who is just some good, mostly not. Uh, now, here's what's interesting, is that the story shifts to the thought that as the king goes, so goes the nation. Uh, that's a different way of thinking than if you live in the Western world. We have, uh, we have a prime minister that's great, and I'm um, sure he's a helpful guy and passes some laws that we might like or not. But I don't think we typically think that our life goes according to our leaders. I just don't think we think that way. And what we see in scripture is the exact opposite. A good king, the nation's doing well. Bad king, the nation is not doing well at all. Everything, the people succeeded or not, depending on how well that king represented God and was in right relationship with God. It's a different way of thinking about how well things go, but it's according to who's leading. So, uh, mostly not going well. These kings are mostly not following God. And so, uh, there's just lots of problems with that. So what God did is he sent messengers, and they're called prophets, and he was calling the king and the people to repent, to return to this covenant relationship that they had with their ultimate king, the living God. Uh, and this, these prophets would come and bring warnings, and I'll just read one of them out of Leviticus 23. It was kind of a forewarning, but it says, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. What a, that's a hard thing to think about. God's children, this is what God says to his children. I'm going to draw out my sword and pursue you. People often uh, say that God was really biased toward the Israelites and that he commanded them to commit uh, genocide against other nations. But the way that he treated other nations who were unrighteous is the way that he treated his own people. He says, your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Warning after warning through these messengers, through these prophets, and they simply didn't listen. So after between, it depends how you count, but between two to 300 years of warnings, uh, God acted on their covenant breaking. And he says, look, you don't want a relationship with me? Then I'm gonna honor your decision and I'm gonna break relationship with you. I think that that's an important way to think about how God thinks. It's not like uh, his people were really disobedient and he says, I'm, I'm tired of your misbehavior, I'm now gonna judge you. It's more like, I've been pursuing relationship with you and you reject me at every turn. So eventually, I'm not stupid, I'm gonna get the message that you don't want a relationship with me and so I'm gonna honor your decision and I will now break relationship with you the way that you've broken it with me. I'm not going to force you to have a relationship with me. I'm not going to force you to be, for me to be your king. 
And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a dream come true. I'm no longer going to be your king. But as a result, you're going to be exposed to other kings who are nearly as kind or loving or patient as I am. And so what he did is he exiled them. He took them out of relationship with him and sent them to a place that was ruled by other kings. First, the, uh, the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians. But all of these nations and kings, they were horribly cruel to the Israelites. Um, and so the, the, the fascinating idea is, is that they, they had their dream. You didn't want me to be your king, so I'll stop. But here's what it's like for me not to be your king, is that you're going to be overrun by other rulers who don't care about you at all. And so what we see in this exile is the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden, where God pursues relationship with Adam and Eve. Uh, they, don't, they break relationship, and so they get banished from Eden. Now, Eden is the same geographical area that the Promised Land is in. So the Promised Land becomes a symbol of a place of shalom and peace. And he gives it to them as a gift. They don't want to enter into peace with him or others, and so he exiles them out. Or other people come and run over that, uh, that land. And this time it happens again. You don't want relationship with me? I'm going to exile you out of Eden, out of the Promised Land, and you'll be under a much more cruel ruler. Now, it took two to 300 years of them being out of the land of Israel before Jeremiah 30.10 says, I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Now, I just love this about God. When you read through, I don't know if you've ever done this because it's, it's not popular, but when you look at the Old Testament, you have uh, mostly uh, historical books, and then during the time of the monarchy, a time of peace, you have songs and poetry, those kinds of things being written, and then you have these prophets, and they're called minor, minor, minor prophets, it's just the length of the books, and they're they are revealing the heart of God towards his people. And when you read these prophets, you get insight into how God feels about us. And he says, I am sick and tired of you. I do everything for you. I've loved you in every way. And you keep churning your back on me, doing whatever you want. I am so frustrated. I'm going to destroy you all. And he says, ah, but I can't destroy you all. You're my children. I just, I love you. And even though you've broken a relationship with me, I can't do that to you. And then we continue to be disobedient. He says, no, but I have to for, for justice sake. I have to uh, stand up and have you experience the consequences of your decisions. And he goes back and forth through these prophets. And you see God wrestling in his heart how to deal with people who keep rejecting his invitation for a relationship, right relationship with him and with the people around them. Just torturous to his soul. And so he sends them into exile. It lasts between two to three hundred years. They kind of come back in, in bits. 
And then he says, I can't leave you there. I'm going I'm to I'm bring you back. I love you too much. But when they come back this time, it's just not the same. There's no more prophets for 400 years of silence now. Because every king that has come before has always led the people astray. And so now they go through, you know, remember the 40 years in the desert? Well, now this is 400 years. But it's the same idea. 40 is always a time of testing. And so for 400 years, no prophets speak. God is silent. And they're waiting for a better king. Um, this king is called a messiah. The word messiah just means a deliverer or a savior. And uh, this foreshadowing of this coming king is going to be Jesus. Let's look at what was prophesied, told ahead of time, that he would be like. Um, he would, you can click the button. He would be a descendant of Abraham. Click it one more time. It's going to be amazing. No, it doesn't work. I have a list of he would be a descendant of Abraham and King David. So even though the descendants of Abraham continually reject relationship with God, he still stayed faithful. And this coming king would come from their descendants. He would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And I'm giving you these Bible verses to show what's being forecasted for the future. He would live a sinless life. If you want to read one chapter in the Old Testament that summarizes what Jesus is like, you read Isaiah 53. It's really the, the best summary of what he was like. Now, the reason why he was born of a virgin was so that he could live a sinless life. He was not subject to a sinful body the way that we are, and so he could live a sinless life. He never sinned once. He would be betrayed Beaten, this is all forecasted ahead of time, killed, and then buried in a rich man's tomb. He would be made an offering for sin. Remember that Passover lamb? He would now be the ultimate Passover lamb once for all. He would never have to sacrifice a lamb again because they were all foreshadowing the coming of this Messiah. Um, he would be made an offering for sin and he would rise from the dead. And he would establish a kingdom like no other Israel had ever known. He would fulfill every promise God made to Abraham and his descendants. Not one of them would fall. He would bless all the nations through this kingdom. And he would usher in an age of the Spirit. Uh, there's at least some people, it depends how you count how many prophecies were, filled, were fulfilled by Jesus. But there were at least 48. Some say that there were hundreds. But there was at least 48 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' uh, life and death. The chances of that happening are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So you just add 157 zeros. It's impossible outside of God. So uh, here's the point that we want to uh, uh, to have us focus on. Everything in Israel's history is always moving toward Shalom, this peaceful kingdom where people are in right relationship with God and with one another. 
there's two things that are required for that shalom to occur. The first is to find a trustworthy leader. As uh, Pastor Matt talked about last time, that we have a king-size problem. That we, we never quite have the king that we need to lead us. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard of a word called salvation. And, uh, you know, people will ask, have you been saved? And, uh, and, when, and if we say we've been saved, what do we typically mean when we say that? It means that we're going to go to heaven. Our sins have been forgiven, and we're going to go to heaven. Uh, in the Old Testament, when the word salvation is mentioned, it is primarily described as being saved from oppressive rulers and kings. That's what's primarily going on. So when God says, I've come to save you, what he's saying is, I've come to set you free from other spiritual and physical rulers who will oppress you and enslave you and take advantage of you. Salvation is a political term. And it has to do with finding a better king to rule us. So it's interesting then, when we talk about being saved, we think, my sins are forgiven and I get to go to heaven. Jesus, when he says, I've come to save you, it's you have been oppressed by, uh, by demonic powers. You've been oppressed by being your own ruler. And I'm coming to deliver you from your leadership of yourself. I've come to be a better leader in your life. So if you say, I've been saved, I'm a Christian, I've been saved, what that means is you've submitted yourself to a better ruler. Now that ruler is so great, he does forgive your sins and give you eternal life. But there's a saying uh, that God can only save or heal or forgive who he rules. And so uh, the way that you get the benefits of the king is by submitting to that power. Now, we've made this uh, very different. And so I, I will talk to people, and they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian. I, oh, that's great. And they'll describe how they live their life. And there's no submission to that king. It's just doing what they want, and they understand that being a Christian means I've been forgiven, and I get to go to heaven now. And that's, quite frankly, an unbiblical description of being a Christian. A Christian is one who have said, I am an oppressive ruler of myself. There's demonic powers that oppress me. There's social structures and political powers that oppress me. I need to be saved from those bad leaders, and so I submit myself to a better leader. So the two requirements then to experience peace internally and to experience peace on earth is we need a better ruler. And number two is we need to submit or trust that king as his followers. 
Now, when you hear people talk about um, how peace is going to come to Earth, how do people describe peace coming to Earth? I often hear it described as, as uh, we need to get rid of all, um, all authority structures. And the primary problem, the primary reason why there's no peace on Earth is we have people fighting for power. And if we can just get rid of that, uh, I was watching just for a few minutes the opening ceremony for the Olympics. And uh, it seems without exception, when any of these things go on, you have to sing John Lennon's song, Imagine. <laughs> and uh, it's always imagine there's no heaven or hell. There's no consequences. And there's this idea that the problem that we have with not experiencing peace is because there's people who control. Mm. And then scripture comes along and says that's kind of true. But the way to get rid of people who misuse power is to find people who will use power rightly, not just get rid of all power. So you have a world trying to get rid of power. And Christianity is an offense. Mm. Because it says, actually, we believe that peace will only come through a better power and through a people submitting to that power. Yeah. So what if the reason why uh, uh, you or I would not feel peace in our soul? Uh, I was just in, in Oregon talking about anxiety. And uh, I think in, this, in the States, there's 40 million people right now who are suffering from anxiety. And I think it's 40% of students uh, would describe themselves as having a severely anxious episode in the last year. Anxiety is just a huge issue, a lack of peace, internal peace. And uh, what kills me is what if the increase in anxiety in society is directly proportional to becoming a more secular society? And as we no longer submit to a greater king, uh, God, the natural result of that would be the lack of peace, the presence of anxiety. So maybe the reason why you would feel anxious inside is not because you need to just slow down your life a little and you've got too much going on, there's too much stress. The reason would be is that there's been no submission in your heart to a better king. And as you would submit to his rulership, you would have peace inside. And if you're not getting along with family members or friends, that the reason for that is that you and they are not submitted to a common king. And the only way that you will experience true and lasting shalom is if everyone submits to that greater power. What if the primary issue going on today is the exact same issue that we see through the history of Israel, people struggling to submit to the Lord, uh, to the Lord God, yeah. to Yahweh? What if that's our primary problem? 
I spend a lot of time uh, uh, reading psychology. I just I find it helpful. And uh, when you when you look at uh, they they have methods now for dealing with anxiety, and it's very successful. The 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 programs that you can go in to deal with your anxiety, they really do work. But they work in a way that makes your life smaller, not more loving or more trusting. And so while it might get rid of the symptoms of anxiety, it doesn't heal the root of yourself and others not knowing how to trust and submit to a heavenly king. So, in conclusion, what if our personal problems are about oppression and salvation is about submission? That as we submit our relationships, as we submit our emotions, we submit our thoughts, our behaviors to the king, we experience shalom inside us and around us. And I think I find this to be a much better answer to personal and social problems by tying them to a greater power than simply by asking everybody to get along a little bit better. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that, um, that you are our peace. You describe yourself in Isaiah 9 as the, as the Prince of Peace. And God, I pray that we would seek uh, submission to you as the answer to our personal and relational problems. That we wouldn't make it about uh, managing our emotions or slowing down a moment and counting to ten while those things might be helpful. I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the insight to see that what's really going on is what has always been going on. And that people have struggled to submit to your authority. Father, would you help us view our issues in that light? In Jesus' name, amen.